You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Smith. Today, I am chatting with the delightful Phoebe Wall. Phoebe is an award-winning author, illustrator, and surface designer whose work focuses on themes of comfort, fantasy, and intimacy with nature and one another. She grew up unschooled in Washington State and graduated from Rhode Island School of Design in 2013 with a BFA in illustration. Her first children's book, Sonia's Chickens, was the recipient of the Ezra Jack Keats Book Award for New Illustrators, and her most recent book, Little Witch Hazel, was an indie bestseller, Junior Library Guild Gold Standard title, as well as being named one of the best books of 2021 by BookPage, Book Riot, Booklist, and the Chicago Public Library, and My Children and Me. Her other titles include The Blue House, Backyard Fairies, and the brand new Out This Week, So Go Get Your Copies illustrated young adult novel, Phoebe's Diary. We're going to talk a lot about the new novel in this conversation, but I also wanted to talk to Phoebe about fat fashion, about how we figure out style and aesthetics, and I got a lot of your questions in the conversation too. So we get into being a creative, being a mom. Yeah, so many things. Phoebe's one of those people you can talk to all day, and I almost did. So I think you will love the conversation. Make sure you go get Phoebe's Diary, and here's Phoebe. But first, a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat themed Georgie, and they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick and mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon, including Phoebe Wall, who you'll hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. My name is Phoebe Wall and I am an author, illustrator, surface designer, occasional art teacher, and a mom to an 18-month-old. Yes. An adorable 18-month-old from what I see on Instagram. <laughs> like, really a highly edible baby. So, good work there. <laughs> good work. Yes. But we are not here to talk about your kid, though, of course, they are welcome to be a part of the conversation. <laughs> we are here to talk about your new book that is coming out when this airs. It will be, like, your pub week. And your new book, Phoebe's Diary, which is just, oh, it's just so wonderful, Phoebe. I love it so much. It's like... Thank you captures everything about that time of life and how everything is confusing and intense and wonderful and awful all this like 
it is teenage emotions. <laughs> yes. Bourgeois. Very raw teenage emotions. Oh my goodness. I mean, and you yep. drew on your own teenage diaries to write this, which yeah. as I was reading it was like, wait, this is, I mean, I want to die just thinking about rereading my own teenage diaries, let alone publishing or having any part of them be public. Like, I am appalled by my younger self in so many ways. So please tell us how you did this, like both the process. I mean, I want to know, like, do you draw first? Do you write first? But also just like, how did you decide to excavate (laughs) such vulnerable years of our lives? So generally I write first, you know, sometimes I kind of get like an instantaneous download with like in my mind of like all the writing, all the images at once. And then the process of creating a book is kind of figuring out how to like retroactively make that thing. I would say for this book, I mean, initially when I found this diary, so my mom brought it over. I live in the same town as my mom, which is fun because she often brings boxes of my childhood stuff over that then I have to deal with (laughs) that I can't just eternally store in her house. I I can clean out my basement. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Whereas my sister gets to permanently store stuff at my mom's house. But yeah, so (laughs) I had this diary that my mom brought over and I started kind of looking at bits and pieces of it while I was organizing things and putting stuff away. And I was really struck by the way that I wrote when I was a teenager because it almost felt like I was writing for an audience. Like it had this tone about it that felt kind of like the tone of a book. And it was probably because I was a huge reader and like a huge nerd and read a lot of like diaristic books when I was a teenager. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of naturally wrote with this funny voice. And so I was kind of surprised by like the fact that it already felt a little bit like a story. And then reading through it, I continue to be surprised by like there was kind of the loose bones of a plot. Like a lot of the plot is fictionalized. Like the book is overall fiction, but still there was like elements that kind of felt like the beginning of a story. And even the way the book starts where I'm like, I'm starting this new diary, but I never finish things. So it'll be interesting to see if I finish this one. And then I do actually finish it. And even that almost feels like a weird setup that's like, why, how did I write that? And I don't know, it it felt really interesting. Like I was like, this could lend itself so easily to being an actual book. So initially, a few years ago, I made a zine called Old Diary Entries About Sex. And that was kind of like just a couple different key entries that I pulled that I thought were funny or like charming or meaningful and made into just like a short, really limited edition zine and sold it at like a couple festivals. I don't even think I sold it online, but it was like, popular enough and fun enough to make that I was kind of like, maybe this would be fun to expand someday or like make into different installments and, you know, multi-zine kind of little collection. But it wasn't until COVID that I was kind of like stuck inside in early COVID and was like organizing things again and going through the journal. And we were in a pod with my best friend And I like started reading her little bits of the journal and also actually started reading little bits to another friend who is like one of the characters in the book is based on. So she was like a high school friend. And we had a couple nights in COVID where we were like outside in the freezing cold in the winter, like huddled reading our high school diaries to each other and just like laughing about just like the insane drama of the stories, but also like how painfully relatable they were even to our adult selves. Mm -hmm. There's these interesting moments of like 
extreme lack of self-awareness, but coupled sometimes with this like real hyper-awareness of why I'm feeling the things I'm feeling or what that's influenced by. And so I think just through sharing it with friends and their reactions to it and how much they related to it and were laughing at it, I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe this could be something bigger Mm -hmm. that isn't just like a little project for me. And so I started by transcribing the whole diary, which was about 25,000 words. Oh my goodness. To be clear, I am also extremely mortified by this diary (laughs) and like totally excited for it to be in the world, but also very nervous and embarrassed. And transcribing the raw diary was like, I mean, if you think the final book is cringy, like the original diary was just beyond. It was really hard not to self-censor the most awkward parts as I wrote and just be like, nope, this is a transcript. The next part will come later. Right Right now, I just have to deal with how I said that thing. Even yes, though, exactly. yes. And I want to be clear, I don't think the final book is cringy. I think it is beautiful and so full of heart. <laughs> oh, thank you. But, I'm, but I know my own teenage diaries were quite cringy and my yes. teenage life. So I can imagine yes. this looking in the mirror phase was not the most. For sure. But yeah, so I started by transcribing it. And then I think especially when I transcribed it, I just started to have all these thoughts of like, oh, like what are the things I could add to heighten this plot or mm-hmm. to kind of like, you know, raise the stakes of the story and make it more interesting. And of course, in a real diary too, there's stuff where like, I mentioned just a wide variety of people, family, friends, neighbors, school friends. And so a lot of the fictionalizing and editing process had to do with like condensing all these different things that happen to you in real life into like a much Mm -hmm. smaller world (laughs) so that it's like more contained for and understandable for a reader. Yeah. And then just kind of engineering more of a plot. So that's really how it began. And I kept workshopping it with friends and ended up sending it to my agent likely and was like, maybe this is the worst thing that anyone's ever written in history. But if you'd ever want to look at it and at least tell me that, then I can move on from the project. And instead, they were like, yes, no, make it a book. (laughs) Keep going. Instead, she was like, I'm obsessed. And so, yeah, then we ended up selling it to Little Brown, which is who's publishing the book. That's so cool. So, of course, I want to talk about the body stuff a little bit. I mean, I would say that, and it's like odd because Phoebe is you, but Phoebe is a character in the book. So I'm going to talk about like character Phoebe. Yes, that's good. Phoebe's experiences with anti-fatness is a thread in the book, but not Mm -hmm. the central plot of it. I mean, there's like comments like her dad says a weird thing about bacon and she, you know, sees a play with a fat actress in it and is like, you know, has that moment of profound recognition, which is so amazing. But she's also just like super focused on her crushes and her sexuality and theater and friends and all of that has nothing to do with body size, which I found to be a relief, to be honest, you know, that we have this fat character with so many dimensions beyond her experience of fatness. So I would love to hear how you thought about writing Phoebe's body. That's funny because, you know, the book is kind of promoted as being like body positive. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I think it's necessarily body negative or like entirely or something. But I feel like that's kind of become like a euphemism for like fat character. (laughs) That person Um, wrote a book. Yeah, exactly. And I think the way you described it of like there being these threads of anti-fatness feels a lot more accurate. Mm -hmm. Like 
like you said, there's positive parts like her kind of finding her fat style icon and being just totally enamored. But there's also a lot of complex parts, or a few at least, about her not feeling entirely positive Mm -hmm. about her body. I think it was really hard to balance those parts. I didn't want those parts to come off as an example for teenagers, like because there were like real teenagers reading this book, especially in the time this book was set, 2006, which is just like such a bleak time. But also it didn't feel realistic to not include some moments of that because I also didn't want it to be a book that's too shiny. Like I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of moments in the book where my character, the character of Phoebe, isn't like always the best person in the book, you know? And I think the body stuff kind of mirrors that is like, she's not necessarily this paragon of body positivity, but she hopefully feels like a real person, which kind of felt more important to me. There was some discussions of like, should we include more passages about, you know, her relationship with her body. Mm -hmm. And I kind of landed on no. And part of that was because my real diary had a few things, you know, sprinkled throughout. But for the most part, I was just focused on my crushes and theater and my other stuff going on in my life. And it's complicated, too, by the fact that, like, I was in a smaller body than I am now in high school. Like, I was at, like, the highest end of the straight size spectrum, Mm -hmm. I would say. But in making a fictional book, I was like, well, now my experience feels so tied to the body I'm in now as this like small mid-fat person Mm -hmm. that it felt much more alive to me to make her body closer to what it is now. And also like just putting a book out into the world for teenagers, it felt more important to me to have fat rep than to have kind of you know, large straight size, yep. mid-size rep, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. And I think I think you're doing all of it. And I think that the fact that you draw her in a bigger body and we see her having these other, like even if she has these tough moments with her body, which I mean, every teenager does and certainly every fat yeah. teenager does, you're also showing that she's so much more than her body. That is yeah. very radical and important yeah. fat rep. So yeah. I loved that. Thank you. Yeah, I thought you got it really right. I mean, I also loved these moments where she would put on some cool early 2000s fashion and be like, I feel so cute. And I was like, yeah, Yeah. that's right. (laughs) That is a great sweater, whatever. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, she had a lot of moments of going to parties and being like, yep, I feel good about this look. And that was really fun. So totally loved it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Let's talk a little more about fat rep and kids' books in general. I mean, you have given us the gift of Little Witch Hazel, who (laughs) anyone who doesn't have Little Witch Hazel in your children's library, like, what are you doing? It's just (laughs) the most beautiful, wonderful, fat positive without discussing fatness character. And then, of course, you have your hobby Instagram, Fat in Picture Books, where you show a lot of (laughs) fat characters, which is completely delightful. Yeah. How do you think about this? Where do you think we're making progress? Where do you think we still need to work on it? It's getting so much better Mm -hmm. than it used to be. Like, I really feel like I only entered the industry 10 years ago and I feel like there's so much more body diversity now. And I feel like where it's really getting better is in new people entering the industry. I feel like there's a lot of newer books and newer folks entering the industry who seem to have more of an awareness of like casually incorporating body diversity of Mm -hmm. all kinds. And I think where it still could grow is like in more established and maybe especially like some old guard illustrators and authors. 
I get this inclination that there's kind of, you're in your work mode, you know, you're in the way you already do things. And so maybe there's less kind of continual analysis of like, what if I did this differently? What Mm -hmm. if I included this new kind of person, you know? So I think that's where it could still improve. And I mean, I think it could absolutely still improve overall. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think like the improvements we're seeing are absolutely not enough. But I do feel like I am consistently surprised now when I go to the bookstore or the library and I'm like, hey, there's like a casual fat person in the mm-hmm. background of this book. And they're not like gorging themselves on sausages or right, something. Right, they're not the bad so, the Yeah, so I think like it's definitely going in a really good direction. And I just really hope that kind of this current like regression culturally, I feel like we're in Mm -hmm. that feels maybe kind of like some pushback to the body positive fat liberation movement. I really hope that doesn't swing into picture books and that they just keep improving. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. I get readers like DMing me when they're outraged, when they're reading a book with their kid. And often it's books from our childhood or I'm a little older than you. So like my childhood, your childhood, like, you know, it's the Berenstein Bears, too much junk food. People will pick up an older kid's book and be horrified to realize how okay it is to have fat jokes and fat stereotypes. And that's so interesting. And then, of course, we have like Streganona. There are some like fat iconic characters, but yeah, of older children's books. But yeah, a lot of it is like we all need to do the work to find and support the new authors. Even icons like Streganona, who I absolutely love, I think still kind of sometimes fit into this archetype mm-hmm. of like a mothery archetype. It's yeah. like maybe she doesn't have her own children, but she's still kind of the one who's like, okay, I guess I'm going to, you know, save Big Anthony from another chaotic situation. Yes, for sure. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, she's upholding a lot of gender norms and expectations. She literally spends book (laughs) after book just making pasta. So there is that. But also she's wise and all-knowing. Yeah, she's the profile pick on fat and picture books for a reason because she is an icon. I'm so glad that you enjoy that account. I feel really bad because I've totally fallen off the bandwagon posting on that account. Like, I am kind of a chronically, like, eyes are bigger than my plate person (laughs) hobby-wise. And so I'm always, like, getting really excited and starting things and then being really overwhelmed, like, one week later. Yeah, I mean... I think it's fine. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. That one, especially I was so excited about and then like crowdsourced ideas of things to post. And I was like, this is amazing. People have so many ideas of fat characters that I don't have. And then I was like, oh, shit. Now I like have to make a spreadsheet (laughs) with all these things. And it got complicated, too. Of like That takes the joy out of it. Yeah. And how much analysis do I post along with the image. Like I started being like, I'm just going to post a picture of a fat character, say what book it's from, and there's no commentary. But then that felt shitty if it's like a really fat phobic book. So it felt like there needed to be some commentary, but it gets hard too, because it's like, these are like, if we're talking about contemporary books, these are people who are my peers in the industry. And Mm -hmm. so... I feel like that also started just making me feel a little anxious, just being like, how much do I want to, for this project that was supposed to be like a fun hobby, now potentially have to kind of like very publicly call out or call in fellow authors and illustrators about problematic things in their books. So I think all of that added to me just being like, I'm taking a break. Yeah, well, that's fair. (laughs) And what's there is delightful for people to discover. So I don't think you you. need to feel like you have to keep charging ahead with it. I think it is a gift to all of us that you put up the content you did. And if you ever want to come back to it, great. And if not, 
someone else can run with that horse. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but totally. I'm, yeah. And I would love to continue it yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah. Totally fair. It's a really complicated conversation. I mean, representation is always a complicated conversation. Yeah. But in kids' books especially, there's a lot of layers to it. There's challenging the old stereotypes. There's characters that deal directly with anti-fatness in ways mm-hmm. that give kids tools to do it. And then there's mm-hmm. the need to get to this place where characters can just be fat and not mm-hmm. have that be their identity and central plot line. And, you know, yep. like all of this needs to happen sort of at once. So there's yeah. a lot of work that needs to happen there. Exactly. Yeah. The solution is always just like, more rep More in rep. general. Yeah. But then, yeah, that's kind of a hard note to just give yeah. the world. <laughs> <laughs> More of this, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So Corinne and I were chatting about like, oh my gosh, we're having Phoebe on and what do we want to talk to her about? And she immediately said, well, you have to ask about clothes because Phoebe has amazing style. She's correct. Oh. And you also have like such a cohesive aesthetic like throughout your art But also you, I mean, at least in terms of what you post of outfits and things, like you really dress how you draw, if that makes sense. Yes. And I would just love to hear your style story, how this developed. It's so clear to me what is a Phoebe Wall look, which is amazing. Thank you. Well, I'm very flattered that Corinne said that because Corinne is also one of my style icons. And I mean, it's funny because I feel, yes, I feel like I barely post outfits these days on social media. And I feel like I've kind of been in a confused moment with my style where I'm like, am I kind of like a linen sack, woolly art teacher gnome? Or am I like a wild, floral, cool, sexy garden lady? Mm. You know, like, I don't know. I feel there's like kind of like always these two factions inside of me that's like, I just want to be comfortable and wear like a sack and actually not feel this pressure Mm -hmm. to kind of constantly show my identity and aesthetic Mm -hmm. through what's on my body. And then also sometimes just having so much legitimate love for things that do, you know, do that and wanting to wear them. So I think I mostly just need to come to peace with that. Sometimes I'm going to be both and that's okay. But I feel like my style story, I mean, it's changed so much as my body has really changed in the last like 10 years. I feel like I used to wear a lot more vintage clothes and stuff like that when my body was smaller. Mm -hmm. And I still really enjoy doing thrifting and stuff now. But I mean, A, with a kid, I'm like, never have time. It's like something that you really have to devote a lot of time to if you want to find stuff. And especially if you want to find plus size stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically impossible. Like, Value Village, Goodwill, places like that that are like the big box, you know, thrift stores stop like at my size. So it's like maybe there'll be a few things that I am interested in. But for the most part, it's, you know, stuff that I either don't care about or doesn't fit me. So I also started making my own clothes, which was fun, but also takes a lot of time. I don't know. I Mm -hmm. think... Yeah, I feel kind of in this struggle moment with like knowing how to dress my body after having a baby and just not having very much time, but wanting to feel confident and like myself. And I definitely also kind of compulsively shop when I feel anxious about my body, I think. because yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, well, maybe I'd feel, you know, better if I just got this thing. And that's what's missing. (laughs) Yeah, it's always like the top that's going to solve everything. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I hardly yes. to that the dress that's going to fix all my problems. I think For this sure. is like so relatable. I definitely went through the same thing in terms of like after I had my kids, both how motherhood changed my body and the lack of like shopping used to be one of my main hobbies. Yeah. And then both body size changes and the added, you know, hours I spent <laughs> parenting that I used to be yeah. able to go to the mall or whatever or go thrifting, like, doesn't exist anymore. And it was such a big shift. And it is a really tricky transition. I think we talk about it in terms of, like, how do I find clothes that fit? But we don't talk yeah. about it in terms of how do I find clothes that I love, that are my aesthetic? Like, what do I want my aesthetic to be now? Is it changing? All of that is, it's really murky territory. Totally. And there's just so much shit that comes up. I mm-hmm. mean, so much more kind of like internalized, like ageism and fat phobia and stuff that I think will continue to catch me off guard mm-hmm. even after, you know, 32 years as a human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I agree with that. The pressures on moms that you need to still look like you never did this thing. I mean, even if you're like, I can clearly push back against that as diet culture. Yeah. I find it can show up. It's that thing you were just describing and like, do I want to be the linen sack person or do I want to be like sexier or what, you know, like how do I bridge these things? Yeah, Yeah, totally. Tricky, tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I also just prioritize comfort so much more than I let myself prioritize it in the past. And that has been super liberating. I will say. Yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember if it was on your podcast or somewhere else where someone talked about like, you know, a great way to stop hating your body is to wear things that don't feel like they're policing your body. Yes. And yes. I feel like that like is a really big thing for me is just like, do I hate this outfit or do I physically hate how, how it, like, feels. it feels yeah. on my stomach when I bend over? Yes. <laughs> you know? Oh, Lord. Yeah. yeah. That is such a big one. Giving yourself permission. Yeah. To wear clothes that don't hurt and police your body is a big yes. step. Yeah. Totally. All right. I also crowdsourced some listener questions because I knew we had so many Phoebe fans. Aww. So I'm going to run through some listener questions now. These are some awesome. fun ones that came in. Okay. One person wants to know your favorite pens, notebooks, or other drawing tools. Okay. So my favorite journal currently is this brand. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but it's like Luke term. I think they're German or Dutch or something. Luke term 1917. Okay. And it's just like the smoothest, most buttery paper. And they have a pocket in the back of the journal and you can get like dot grid, regular grid, lined. Mm -hmm. I just do a blank book, but I am loving that journal, even though I never have time to use it. But when I do, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it as an idea for me. (laughs) Yes. And yeah, when I do use it, it's great. Yeah. I also, I think those might be a little more expensive, but I also really like handbook brand, which I can get just at my local art supply store. I think they're like a little more common. And I also would recommend if you like want a new hobby or, you know, have time for such things. I used to make all my sketchbooks and that can be a really, really fun like project is making your own books. And then you get to make it just the way you want with the paper you want. But for pens and stuff, I have a really awesome writing pen. The brand is Rotring and it's kind of like a, it's like a metal pen that has a very nice weight to it. So it's like a ballpoint quality I mean, nice ballpoint quality ink, Mm -hmm. but then just like the most delicious heavy weight of the pen. And I also love Pentel and Kurataki brush pens. Mm. And 
for watercolors, I would say Daniel Smith watercolors, which are made in Seattle, which are really wonderful. Awesome. We will link to all of those. I am excited too, especially because we're running the September back to school energy. I'm like, I yes. obviously need many new pens and notebooks, despite not being someone who draws like that. But I think I now need all this. So <laughs> yes, see previous discussion regarding compulsive shopping. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, thank you for enabling us. <laughs> um, <laughs> Always. Sounds super fun. Okay, next question. Did homeschooling slash unschooling support your body positive art? Yeah, I think yes and no. I mean, I think I was very sheltered in some ways by it. You know, like I wasn't super, super sheltered. But even just, you know, not going to school and especially not going to middle school because I went to bits of elementary school and then high school part time. But even just skipping middle school, I feel like I missed out on like a lot of toxic Mm. body comparison energy that I'm kind of grateful for. (laughs) But still, I mean, the culture crept in and I really feel like I can kind of trace my journey with body acceptance through my art because I mean, when I was a tween, a teen, like I truly was drawing like emaciated, mysterious women in like mm. sexy dresses, smoking cigarettes, you know, mm-hmm. like, and then it really wasn't until college that I was starting to like draw bigger bodies or even just bodies that looked more like my own. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I do kind of feel like in a way, the biggest way that homeschooling slash unschooling like influenced, I guess, making body positive, for lack of a better word, art is like, I think just giving me a lot of time to really focus on developing skills that made me feel confident Mm -hmm. and that gave me meaning beyond my body, Mm. you know, so that I feel like I've always, you know, even though I've had lots of terrible moments, you know, in terms of body image and stuff like that, like, I feel like I've always had things to fall back on that still give me confidence and give my life meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, like art and writing and sewing, gardening, any other hobby I have, relationships, friendships, you know. So I think to me, I guess that feels like the biggest gift, which I don't think is, you know, necessarily only accessible through homeschooling. But I think just, yeah, really making sure I had time to dig into things that made me feel confident and like more than just a body. Oh yeah, that is so crucial. I think that's a piece, often I'm so focused on helping parents think about how to talk about the issues at hand, right? The way a child is struggling in their body or naming anti-fatness that I forget this component of it, which is that we need to be trying to raise kids as people who know their value has nothing to do with their body and who have all these passions that can exist regardless of what's happening with their body. That's so important. Was it a conscious decision to start drawing fatter bodies? Like, was that something that happened gradually? Or was there a moment where you were like, I want to start drawing me. I want to see me more. I think it was kind of gradual. But yeah, I don't know. I don't remember it being super conscious. I mean, I definitely think I got, I mean, I guess I remember a period of time, maybe around like, like slightly post-college, like 2013, 2012, you know, like where I was starting to maybe get more intentional with kind of like my discovery of body positivity, you know. Mm -hmm. But I still think at that time I was drawing pretty small bodies, you Mm -hmm. know. So I do feel like it's like, 
as I get older, as I get fatter, as I get more radicalized, I think my drawings like continue to grow Mm -hmm. and become more intentional. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't remember like a specific moment, but I do think there was kind of like a dawning around that era of, you know, this other world existing, you know, this world where I didn't constantly have to try and shrink my body, even though I would, you know, continue to do that for a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, we're always kind of going in circles. Was Little Witch Hazel more like, okay, I want her to be fat? Like, how did that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, well, I actually, you know, Backyard Fairies, I think was my first book where, I mean, and that character is not necessarily like fat, but I think she's like a chubby kid, mm-hmm. you know, very much like the kid I was. Mm-hmm. I would say that was kind of my first book where I was like, this is an intentional thing I'm doing. Yeah. And Little Witch Hazel, I think even more so. Yeah. And I mean, you know, my body grew in between making mm-hmm. those books. And I think my own need for, like seeing myself in my own work and in books grew. Yeah. But yeah, Little Witch Hazel was, I mean, absolutely intentional. And I think even sometimes I think about how like I love drawing gnomes and sometimes I'm like, why? Like, where did this come from? (laughs) And then recently I was like, you know what I fucking love? All gnomes are fat. Yes. Like you don't see a skinny gnome. You really don't see a skinny gnome. That's true. (laughs) And I think it's part of why I feel attracted to that world Mm -hmm. is that it feels like this very comfortable, supportive little world of fat people. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I also always love in Little Witch Hazel seeing the leg hair and just appreciate the embrace of body hair there. It's really... Oh, yeah. I mean, she doesn't have time to shave. No, what is she, she going to do yeah. it with like a sharp stone? It makes no <laughs> sense. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> why are other books about woodland creatures showing bare legs? It makes... <laughs> these tools yes. are not... There's not like chick razors in the fairy forest. <laughs> but I just love it. So, so good. Thank you. Okay. Back to listener questions. What are your thoughts on body movement for larger kids who don't enjoy typical sports? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can only really speak from my own experience. I have found, I guess, like definitely doing non-competitive things really helpful. Yes, so much. But I definitely feel like I'm in a constant kind of roiling battle with like, what is my reason for doing exercise? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That, you know, definitely started when I was a kid, really associating exercise with like trying to make myself smaller. But, you know, I actually from a young age did Pilates. I think because I was homeschooled, like I had a very flexible schedule. And so I would go to a Pilates studio with my mom and I would take classes starting when I was like 13. Oh, wow. And I definitely think that a lot of diet culture stuff was in that space and like in my inclination to do it at times. But I also feel like it did really give me a grounding in like ways to move my body and support, you know, strength and stuff like that, that, you know, was kind of outside of Mm -hmm. the norm Mm -hmm. and that did feel really good to me and like very supportive. So I, I do think kind of like maybe some non-traditional forms of movement, like at least for kids like that could be cool. And like, I found, I mean, a lot of like, I loved swimming growing up and I swam competitively for a while, but I was just not interested in competing. Like I don't really have a competitive sport bone in my body. And so I stopped. And then I feel like had this narrative for the rest of my childhood of like, remember how you were such a good swimmer. And I'm like, I still am. I I still love it. Yeah. I don't need to race people. I just want to swim. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But 
I don't know. So I would say like swim, but maybe not, you know, swim team or something where you can really compare yourself to other people's bodies and stuff. Like I started doing water aerobics in my early 20s. Oh, that's fun. And I fucking loved it. And also getting to see the bodies that do water Mm -hmm. aerobics. Like it was so many older people and a lot of fat people. And, you know, there was definitely some toxic diet culture talk in the pool between people. But just the exposure to all those different kinds of bodies and that way of moving, I wish I'd done it younger. So I don't know if some pools have like age limits for how young you can do water aerobics, Mm. but honestly, like I feel like I really could have benefited from that as like a kid or teen, just being exposed to, you know, like naked bodies in the changing room. Yes. (laughs) Like that are fat and old, you know. So I have some amazing memories of doing water aerobics with my grandma Betty. She would take me when I was like probably like 11. And yeah, I mean, same thing. Like the older ladies were definitely talking about shaping up and toning up or whatever, but also it was just all these beautiful old women in the pool with all, you know, with their bodies just being what their bodies were. And that is definitely something that stuck with me. Totally. Yeah. One of my hobbies that I don't have time for ideas is like doing a fat positive water aerobics class. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Like I'm like, can I teach that? (laughs) Yes. Can someone start it here in the Hudson Valley too, please? Yes. I will be there. I will be in the pool. Yeah. I think your point about getting away from competition is so good. We have this weird default that kids being physically active equals competitive sports. And I mean, definitely something I learned in reporting Fat Talk is how many ways that is toxic for kids, like not just around bodies, but body autonomy, consent. I mean, it's just, it's a whole mess of stuff. And I know there are benefits to learning to be a gracious loser, to working together towards a goal. Like I understand there are some benefits to kids to having those experiences. And I think those benefits are very rarely achieved in the current youth sport landscape, especially for marginalized kids. Like they might be really realized for like the thin white kid who was already really good at the sport, you know, but like anyone who's just left on the bench, like this isn't doing it. So yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. And another thing I would say too, is like, how can you wrap movement if that's something your kid is interested in doing, you know, into other things that they love doing? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you make something a kid wants to learn relate to what they're excited about? Because they're gonna like, chances are find a lot more meaning and be able to do it more consistently if it's part of something they really enjoy. I mean, so like, I also walked a lot as a kid, like Mm -hmm. walked around this lake we have locally. And that was, you know, about walking, but it was also about being outside and looking at plants and seeing the seasons change and like different other things that I was interested in. So I think that's a big thing for me in my life now too, Mm -hmm. is like, how can I build movement in a way that like supports, you know, all the things I want to do in my life in general. And it isn't kind of like this stressful add on of like, oh shit, but I was supposed to exercise today. Yes, totally. Totally. I just had this experience of like, there was like two or three weeks where I really did not get any movement in at all because my kids are home and our schedule is crazy. And, you know, so like the pockets I have away from them, I'm working instead of making time for my usual exercise and stuff. And I was really reaching this point of like, I think my body is just falling apart. I think 42 is like 
my friend and I joke, we're made of paper clips. Like everything <laughs> hurts all the time. And it's just, this is where I am. And then finally yesterday morning, I made time to do Lauren Lavelle, whose bar classes I'm obsessed with. I did cardio bar and I was like, well, now I feel like an entirely new human being. And I'm so irritated <laughs> to be yeah. reminded yet again <laughs> that yeah. some small movement that is in not any way aesthetic based just like gets you back in your body. Like, ugh, so helpful and also hard to fit yeah. in if you're not someone who innately is drawn to movement like and there's nothing wrong with not being innately drawn I feel like I really get that I need sleep and that I need to eat and I don't innately get that I need to move my body that's just how I'm wired so yeah yeah, totally it's interesting all right this next question I want to preface with I am happy for us to talk about this I think it's a useful question and it very much irritates me because women only ever are asked it. So I'm just putting that framing. I think this is probably someone asking in good faith. They are struggling with this themselves and want to know. So we will talk about it. And also, you probably wouldn't ask a male writer this question. So how do you balance work and finding childcare with being a mom? Sigh. (laughs) I would say it is a constant struggle. I don't feel like I balance it. I feel like I am on the verge of a panic attack at all times. And... (laughs) Especially 18 like, months. Oof. I mean, you're just coming out of the baby year. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're, yes. you're really in it right now. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like, we are actually really, really lucky to have a lot of family support. Like, we live in Bellingham, Washington, which is like where both my husband and I grew up. So we have all of our grandparents and our parents are both divorced. So there's like, you know, four Lots of, sets. Yep, that's always handy. <laughs> so that is really wonderful. But of course, we can't really rely on that as our main childcare for various reasons. And so we've, you know, had a nanny for a while. We have been exploring the idea of maybe doing a nanny share. A lot of the daycare and preschool options here don't start till two or two and a half or three. Mm. So we're kind of looking at least at another year of like trying to kind of cobble together doing it ourselves and having a nanny and family help. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think even with a lot of help and a lot of privilege to do things like find a nanny and stuff like that, it still is really, really fucking hard. And I think also because I'm someone who really needs and likes a lot of time to work and be by myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's definitely been really hard for me to feel a sense of balance with kind of like my identity and work and inner life while also being able to be as present as I want to be mm-hmm. for my daughter. But my husband and I split a lot of childcare, and I would say he kind of is the primary carer, like when she's not in childcare. Like mm-hmm. I definitely do that as well, but we try to be really balanced about it. But of course, it's hard because like she's still breastfeed sometimes mm-hmm. and, you know, she inevitably will go through a real mommy phase. And so, yeah, there's, of course, lots of complicating factors there. And he has stuff he needs to get done. Too. Right. Like right. he's building his new studios in our backyard. And I'm like, when's my new studio going to be done? And he's <laughs> like, well, you've been busy with work. So I've been having to take care of Hazel. Yeah. So I can't work on your new studio, you know, so both of us being self-employed is kind of a whole other layer to that. Of yeah. Like, yay, we have freedom, but also right. how do right. you ever do it all? How so, do we do it all? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I would say it's a struggle and it's really hard. And 
if there's times when it does feel balanced, there's usually a hidden cost of like, our house is a wreck. Mm -hmm. I am really stressed out. You know, like, we are definitely messy, chaotic, overwhelmed people chronically. (laughs) I love just naming that and just saying, yeah, that's what it is. You know, that's where we are. Like, that's so right. I mean, I think it's so important to push back against this myth that particularly attaches itself to creative professions that women creatives don't need childcare, that like somehow you are, like, I think people are picturing you drawing with the baby strapped to you, you know, like just blissfully, like, like I definitely yeah. know people with me were like, well, it's so great. You know, you work from home and I'm like, yes, but I, like the baby can't just be next to me while I'm on my laptop. Like that's not, Yeah. like you can do that for short births here and there, but that's not a durable solution for working. We now all know since COVID and yet also seem to forget all the time. Yeah, totally. I feel like there was like a two month kind of golden period where she was small enough to sleep on me mm-hmm. in a carrier all the time. And I could actually get a lot of work done. Like it's funny because I really look at the newborn phase as like, oh, that actually felt easier for me in Mm -hmm. some ways than this now because now she's mobile yeah yeah because now we need to be present with her almost at all times oh you know I this is one of those things that I say that makes me a very annoying parent of older kids but I actually think between ages one and three is the hardest time and that's not a nice thing to say to people when they're in it I think people are always like can you stop but it really gets easier like between one and three they are just independent enough to need a lot of like time to play and explore and all these things. And yet you really like have to be there with them in a way that, you know, my kids are old enough now to just go like run around in the backyard on their own for an hour. And there's, you know, it's totally, yeah, I I can't wait. Yeah. I think a lot of it is like lowering our expectations of what's possible and just remembering like when you're seeing someone creating a lot or putting out a lot, like know that they didn't do that without a lot of support in place, you know? And this is why I always thank my babysitters and nannies and other childcare providers in my books, like in the acknowledgement section, like neither of my books would exist without daycare, so many people taking care of the kids. And we need to be transparent about that. Absolutely. Okay, last listener question, which I feel like also I need to preface by saying this is a mean question to ask someone who is just now (laughs) launching a book, but I will ask it. Would you ever consider writing a sequel to Phoebe's Diary? Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I hadn't thought about it. I think partially because, you know, even though I don't have as like much diary content, like it's more scattered around, Mm -hmm. it's less like cohesive. It's there, you know, and I have lots of diaries from other times in my life, you know, that could kind of provide some basis for ideas and tone and stuff like that. And I feel like the book in general is like a little bit of a cliffhanger Mm -hmm. in a way. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot that's unresolved. And I feel like a lot of tension that is building in the whole book of like, you know, (laughs) the Phoebe character. Yeah. Just growing a lot and going through a lot and being kind of shitty to friends or having conflict with people that isn't resolved at the end of the book that I would love the opportunity to resolve. But also, I don't know. I think I'm just going to need some time. I have some little bits kind of sequestered in a Word document of like, here's some ideas, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's going to depend on, you know, obviously the response to the book, whether my publisher's even interested in that, if it performs well enough for them, you know, but I think also it felt like such a, I think because it was COVID and I was like pregnant for part of it. So 
I was in this very like internal mode and like private kind of mode when I was just starting this book, working on it. Mm. And it was so immersive and intense that it's a little bit hard for me to imagine getting back into that energy. Yeah. And I feel like the second book, I mean, maybe it would just be its own thing, which I guess is just how different installments of books always are. But I would say I'm totally open to it. But, you know, it depends on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't want you to feel pressured by that question because I find that question (laughs) to be very pressuring. And I think, yeah, there's just so much when you're putting a book out. This is advice Angela Garbus gave me, and I forget which author gave her this advice, so we're just passing it on. But she said something like, it takes about three years to know, like, post-book where you are with that book, like, which I think is really right. I think about my own timelines. And so sometimes you're putting this out and you're like, I I have these thoughts of what could be next, but I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But listeners, if you want there to be a sequel, which I certainly do, let's make sure we all go buy Phoebe's diary so that her publisher yes. wants there to be a sequel. So <laughs> yes, that's exactly. step one, step one to making this happen. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, as you know, we end the podcast with the butter recommendation segment. So Phoebe, what is your butter today? I have two things. And my first thing is having popsicles and ice cream on hand at mm, all times, smart, especially during summer. Yep. And this wasn't really something that I ever did until I moved in with my now husband. And it kind of blew my mind when I moved in with him, like how casual his relationship was to ice cream. Mm. Like he just would have it around and be like, yeah, I don't really feel like that. Maybe I'll have some later. And I'd be like, what? Like I spend my whole day like thinking about when I'm going to have this one little bit of ice Mm -hmm. cream, you know? And I feel like kind of being adjacent to that relationship to it has been so healing to me. And I have really loved, you know, especially when it's hot, just always having a frozen treat that sometimes I have and sometimes I don't. And we've been getting these big boxes of popsicles from Costco called Malona's that are really delicious. They're kind of like melony, creamy fruit popsicles. So that's one of my butters. And then the other one is just going to be graphic novels because Mm -hmm. I have really been beating myself up in the last couple of years for not having enough time to read physical books. I do all my reading with audiobooks pretty much, which I love, but it it can be different. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't always give me that same like mellow dopamine hit that, you know, reading an actual book does. So I have realized lately, like, oh, I can read a graphic novel and it just feels so much more accessible to me because I can read the whole thing in like an afternoon. Yes, it is so satisfying. And I get that, you know, feeling of like sitting, reading a physical book, touching paper, but I don't have to feel stressed about like, when am I going to finish this though? Why Mm -hmm. haven't I been reading? So yeah, graphic novels of all kinds. I love that. That's so fun. Yeah. My kids have definitely helped me get into graphic novels in a way that I wasn't before. And I really appreciate them. And yeah, they're just, they're wonderful. Well, one of my betters is my I don't care about your diet sticker on my water bottle (laughs) drawn by one Phoebe Wall. We will link to. I love this whole, I actually, my local bookstore, Split Rock Book, shout out Split Rock stocks a lot of your stuff and had the stickers and I was like Heidi I need them immediately like I think she put them on Instagram (laughs) and I was like just go ahead and put those aside for me um and yeah I have one on my water bottle and then I have a couple others that I like so much I put in little frames they bring me such joy so that's really fun and then my other butter because it is 
while we are recording this in August, it's going to be out the first week of September. We are in peak Dahlia season, people. This is Mm. not a drill. If you're on the East Coast, the Dahlias are, you know, they're doing their thing. And it is, I always say at this time of year, I say it's my favorite flower. Like I actually have like a long list of favorite flowers, but they are a flower that I put a lot of time and effort into growing. And now it is like the time. So, and this was a rocky Dahlia season for me. I overplanted and some didn't work and it's been a journey, but they're all coming together for me now. It's great. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Phoebe, thank you so much. This was absolutely delightful as I knew it would be. Tell us where we can follow you and what can we do to support your work? Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. You can follow me on Instagram and threads, I guess. Oh, yes. um, At Phoebe Wall. So that's P-H-O-E-B-E-W-A-H-L. And my website is phoebewall.com. And my shop is linked from there. And yeah, I mean, really just my book comes out September 5th, Phoebe's Diary. I'm doing two events, one here in Bellingham and one at Powell's in Portland with Lindy West. Nice. So yeah, if you want to buy the book, that would be awesome. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, people want to buy this book. It's great. So yeah, that's happening. Amazing. Thank you so much, Phoebe. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. Please also leave us a rating or review. They really help folks find the podcast. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks. You keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and threads, question mark, at V underscore Soul Smith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Soul Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.